Welcome to the Next Level Human Podcast. As a human, you have a job to do. In fact, you have four jobs. To earn and manage money, to attain and maintain health and fitness, to build and sustain personal relationships, to find meaning and make a difference. None of these jobs are taught in school, and that is what this podcast is designed to do to educate us all on living our most fulfilled lives through the mastery of these four jobs. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Tita, and I believe we are here living this life for three reasons and three reasons only, to learn, to teach, and to love. In this podcast, I will be learning, teaching, and loving right along with you. I'm grateful to have your company. Here's to our next level. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to today's show. I'm with my good friend, Allie Gilbert. How long have we known each other now? Fuck. Um, I think almost 15 years, maybe? 12 years? It's been a while. And I, I love feel that old. You're here. Yeah, I feel old, too. Man, we might, we're getting old. You don't you look are, it, though. You're all bougie drinking LaCroix now. <laughs> like, look at this guy. Who's he turned into? Hey, what are you trying to say, man? This is just, this is just sparkling tap water. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look, I'm so excited you're here. Allie rolled, rolled through um, Los Angeles. You're here on your... Bachelorette weekend. Yeah, this is a big a big weekend for you. But I grabbed her, brought her into the studio, a.k.a. apartment, <laughs> and we're going to talk um, all about... Erections, testosterone, penis, all that kind of stuff. So let me just our favorite topic, our favorite topic that we're always laughing Which about. So much that I learned from you, <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. So just real quick, let me give you um, sort of a little bit of an introduction. So most people know me, um, and this is what I've heard about you. Actually, I don't know if I've told you this, but it's funny because people uh, see me and they go, "It's so weird. You're like the female metabolism expert, and you're like so like." Dude, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like this this big burly linebacker looking guy who talks about female hormones. And then you got <laughs> this little cute tiny thing who her specialty, Allie's specialty is actually male hormones and testosterone. And so we're kind of like alter egos in a sense, even though she does a lot with female hormones as well. And I do a lot with male hormones. It's just kind of, you know, what we've kind of been. Yeah, that's funny. For. It's funny. So let's let's uh, actually get started, and I'll just kind of get us into the discussion because I just figured we'd have a discussion um, sort of around this. But let's just get everyone sort of up to date, and I guess we'll talk to both the you know women and men who are interested in in male hormonal metabolism and health. To get us started, what would you say would be sort of the the biggest things, biggest misconceptions, or you know pieces of information that people need to know sort of right off the bat? about men and testosterone and all that kind of stuff? Like, what are your key points that you're just like, here's where we really should start? I, I think that guys need to realize that, um, number one, it's okay to want to know about it. So, as you know, men don't go to the doctor. So, they don't really ask the right questions all the time or it's an ego thing or a pride thing. And I think that's where being a female comes in handy because I'm not – you know, the wife or, you know, the girlfriend or, or whatever. I'm a woman who's saying, hey, it's okay if you're experiencing some erectile issues. It's okay if you don't feel like yourself or if you don't feel like the man you used to be. Mm -hmm. So just understanding that and being able to confront that, you know what, something's wrong. 
I think is a great place to start because yeah. I think a guy, a guy doesn't really know to start there. Yeah. And it could be a testosterone issue, but the way our society is these days with stress and everything, like it affects so much as you know. Yeah. So I think, you know, getting past the myths and misconceptions and not really taking what a GP doctor would say verbatim with the uh, uh, scare tactics of it causing cancer and all those things. I think understanding, you know what, I need to ask more questions yeah. would probably be a good way. So, it, all right, so, and I, and so we're, let's unpack this a little bit and basically start with this idea of, like, how would, some, how would a, a guy know uh, that he potentially at any age, really, you know, like let's say, because now we're seeing people with low testosterone, you know, in their 20s that have come into my office and you're just like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. Actually, funny story about this. I remember I had um, a guy late, late 20s, so like mid to late 20s, probably 26, 27, if I remember correctly. And when I was in clinic and his numbers on, so just so everyone knows, typically labs will be a little bit different, but the low end of normal on a lab is 250. The high end of normal on a lab is usually around 1,000 to 1,200. And so this guy was like in the twos. And my father, I happened to um, have his testosterone level. Uh, at that time, he was probably, he's 77 now, so maybe near 70. And he's up near like 800. Wow. Right? And so it's this really interesting thing that we, first point I'm trying to make is it's not necessarily the age of the person, that mm -hmm. very young men can have issues here. And then also the symptoms can vary. So based on a blood lab, obviously, if you're low, you may want to be looking at this, but I want you to walk us through how would you necessarily, like maybe they're in that, that range of like 400, 500, low normal on a lab and maybe having symptoms. What would those symptoms be? Like, how would you sort of walk us through and say, here's what you need to look out for if you're low testosterone as a man? I think, um, you know, most of the guys who would be low, and I think actually four to 500 is, is like, if a guy in their 30s, 40s comes in with that, that's pretty cool. That's like, all right, they're actually way higher than a lot of the kids that, you know, we're seeing in the one and 200s. But so if they're like no, low normal like that, and all of a sudden they start to feel more lethargic than usual and they're gaining body fat in places they never noticed or, you know, they just don't have the sex drive that they used to and maybe their erection strength isn't the same or maybe it's not even as frequent. So, you know, morning wood could be an indicator of that, but it's usually likely to be more of a stress issue in that sense. And I think guys just kind of overall feel this like malaise of life where they just don't feel like they used to when they had a ton of energy mm. and they maybe had more optimal testosterone levels. Yeah. It's kind of like a disinterest in the manly things. Yeah. So brain, what would be going on in their brain? So you, you say like a lack of drive, lack of ambition, lack of interest in not just sex, but, you know, things in general, feeling like low energy, low vitality. And I think we usually think low ambition and low drive because when I think of testosterone, I kind of think of it as sort of a dopamine um, potentiating hormone. Dopamine is a brain chemical that keeps us focused and uh, kind of ambitious and sort of pleasure seeking and testosterone is known as a competitive, you know, sort of hormone. So yeah, men, they, yeah. you know, I oftentimes say, and I know you said this too, that men want to win, mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of like they have this drive to win. And when they start to lose that, we start to suspect maybe there's something going on with testosterone. And then where would be the areas that they would start to gain fat in particular, you know? 
Walk us through that. Could be in the boobs, like man boobs, similar to the female fat storage mm. pattern. So around the hips, maybe the thighs. Um, I've seen some guys who who become more estrogenic or who are born that way have like hyperextended knees. Have you seen that mm. too? Mm. Um, and then, and then around the stomach, obviously, and it kind of just creeps up on them, and they're like, "Okay, where did this come from?" Yeah. You know, like, "Oh, it's my age. Maybe I should do something about it." Yeah. I love, I love what you're saying there. And if you're listening to what Ali's kind of saying, there's this really weird, and and you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ali, but I've always seen sort of this really interesting thing. You'll have men who are high estrogen and men who are low testosterone. And sometimes those things go hand in hand and sometimes they don't. So I tend to look at men and go, okay, if they're storing fat around the hips and butt, and we've all kind of seen this on some men, it's kind of like this pear-shaped man. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm thinking higher estrogen, man boobs, that kind of stuff. And then if I'm seeing belly fat, I'm thinking low testosterone. And oftentimes you see all of that come together where it's estrogen, higher estrogen, and lower testosterone. But sometimes, you know, you can kind of tease that out. It's just dependent on the man. And I think you have to make that determination. Is this an estrogen-related issue? Is this a testosterone-related issue? Is it both? And this is one of those things in men where testosterone and estrogen, men need estrogen as well, mm -hmm. both for health and for a proper erection. Um, but it has to be in, you know, sort of a balance. And so, um, is that kind of how you see it as well? Yeah. Like uh, Charlie and I go to Disney a lot and Disney is full of shapes of people that you don't know exist. And I, I look at them and I'm like, okay, what hormone or horm hormones are off here? And I'm like, God, there's so much content for me. And he's like, don't take pictures of people. <laughs> but you do see that. Like, you're just like, wow, there's fat storage in places that, you know, and you see like, okay, like obviously low, low GH and high insulin and cortisol, those are another conversation, but you you see these men and from behind, you're like, is this a man or a woman? Yep. Yeah. You know, and it, it's really, it's sad, but it's also, this is the state of our society. And, and it's interesting. That's a whole interesting discussion, right? Because a lot of us who work with hormones have, have hypothesized about that for some time. There's not any great science on it. As a matter of fact, if you want to start looking at this, you can look at transgender populations who are uh, basically male conversion to female and yeah. female conversion to male. And that's where a lot of the information will come from in terms of where we see these things show up. But it is a hypothesis we all talk about, but we don't really have a good way to kind of prove it. Like we can kind of say insulin and cortisol are, you know, sort of of belly fat hormones, testosterone tends to keep belly fat off of a male, but tends to actually mean a woman will have thicker, more belly fat. Um, human growth hormone tends to lean out the belly. Um, there's a synergy between estrogen and human growth hormone. And so when you start getting into this, it's very difficult to tease apart fat storing patterns. But it's funny because as you get good at it, you do start to wonder and yeah. hypothesize about these things when you look you look at individuals. And I know um, Charles Poliquin did a lot of that as well in his work. I think he had a, a whole entire course, course on that on where it, he yeah. was looking at. Um, and I know he got a lot of flack for that because there's not really any science on that. But it's just this sometimes, you know, uh, in the clinical world, we tend to pick up on stuff like that mm -hmm. and can use it, um, you know, sort of to judge. Okay, so we've talked about sort of the brain effects. We've talked about sort of the body storage effects. Obviously, uh, walk us through some of the, the issues with the erections, because that's the thing that, you know, most men are going to be most concerned about. And that's going to be the first thing that makes them even, mm -hmm. you know, even if they're feeling a little lethargic in the brain. And once a, once a male starts seeing issues with 
is an erection. The whole world, in his eyes, is blowing up. It's like that's when they start going, uh-oh, something's wrong here. Yeah, that's when they might consider going to the doctor. Yeah. But, it, you know, I get it. It's, it's a scary thing to tell a doctor, like, listen, I'm having erectile issues, or to even admit that. Um, because, as you know, depression is very commonly diagnosed when guys just need hormone testing. Doctors won't do that. They'll just be like, here, here's a happy pill. Um, but with the erections, like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, so do you like talk to guys about their erections on day one? And I'm like, no, it's not like, hey, I'm Allie. Nice to meet you. Yeah, well, Allie texts so, me on the regular and be like, Jade, how's your, how are your erections yeah. <laughs> Like, did you get any, morning wood today? I, I know. Any, any guy friend that's a friend of Allie's, it's like... <laughs> No, like, what's, I actually, what's like, Charlie, your fiance, think about that? You know? <laughs> he, I know I have like progress photos of half naked guys like on my phone and stuff. But it, it's funny because like I will have some of my guys. They're like, I got morning wood like four days this week. And, and it's yeah. like similar to a woman's period. It's a sign of their health, yeah. you know. So when when that which is such a sign of like the, the man being able to be a man, not only in bed, but, you know, to wake up like, all right, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have a rock hard erection. And if the body's like so stressed out that that's not priority, like erections are not priority. Procreation, it doesn't care about that, you know? So I walk, think walk uh, us through the details on, cause I know you, we talk about that, but walk us through the details. Why is morning erection in a man so important to pay attention to how, you know, what should the morning erection, you know, be like quality, quantity, that kind of thing. Walk us through sort some of your evaluations of that and why you see it as so important. So, uh, from personal experience, uh, <laughs> Charlie, <laughs> um, so, you know, there are, there actually, we should make the point, there are a handful of guys who don't get morning mm -hmm. wood and never have. Yep. And they always freak out and they're like, I never got that. Like, should I worry about that? And, and maybe you can comment further on that, but what I tell them is like, you know, if it's something you never had, not something to worry about, but if something you're waking up with regularly and you have all your life and then all of a sudden that goes away, yep. then yeah, maybe we want to, we want to look at that. So if a guy wakes up extremely hard as he should, it, for him, it's a sign of like, yeah, ready to go. Like things are firing, you know, you know that he was getting, he got a good night's sleep because you have to be very parasympathetic in order to achieve that erection. And as soon as that kind of starts being less frequent or the strength of the erection does not last or he goes soft relatively early, that can really mess with his ego. Mm. And when something messes with your ego, that's an automatic stressor. So in, in essence, it's kind of a vicious cycle that can make that get worse unless he addresses that problem. And as I've learned from you also, a lot of that has to do with how he manages stress the rest of the day, yeah. the other 23 hours. So. Yeah. And, and to me, sort of the, the morning erection, it's really interesting. The theory is on this. They don't know exactly why this happens. Partly, if a man has to urinate, one of the theories is that the morning erection is keeping him from basically peeing the bed yeah. because it is essentially pinching off to some degree the urethra. Like uh, any man will tell you, it's very difficult to urinate when you have a very strong erection. I have a so, slide with all the different positions, actually. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's funny because 
because like I remember in college, and it's, it, this is just funny shit, but I remember we had one of these stand-up showers. It's oh, one, yeah. and, and in college, wake up in the morning, and all the guys are basically using the shower because they don't want to like bend over, and it was disgusting, <laughs> right? Because so what they want to uh, do, they go stand in the shower because they're all like have their morning erections yeah, and they yeah, pee yeah. standing up in the shower rather than trying to pee in a toilet where you have to kind of angle yourself and push yourself. Superman. Down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's one, um, you know, sort of potential theory. The other thing about um, erections too is they it's it is. Uh, exercise for the penis. And so one of the interesting thing is just like we need to move our bodies, otherwise they'll atrophy. Mm -hmm. So same with the penis. It's a little bit different muscle, but it is exercise for the penis to push blood through it on a regular right. basis. And this tends to happen um, in the morning. So these are some of the theories around this. And of course, testosterone is really interesting because a lot of, a lot of uh, guys would sort of be like, well, is testosterone giving me an erection? No. What testosterone, what we believe it is doing is it is interacting with the penile tissue and enhancing certain, certain receptors and certain muscle functions and really sort of priming the penis for the other erection uh, triggers. And so that's one of the things why testosterone is important. So uh, I think what you're alluding to, Ali, is that the idea that if testosterone is not present, you may start to see um, this morning erection start to falter. But to answer your question about the men who don't have it, here's it's ultimately in clinical practice, we're always going, what has changed? So a man who doesn't necessarily get um, erections, they probably do. They're just, they're probably getting it earlier in the night mm. because this is something that the body, you know, does to kind of uh, theoretically exercise the penis. So they're probably just not um, noticing it first thing in the morning. Maybe it happens earlier. Mm. But to your point, if they are responsive to sexual stimuli and right. getting strong um, erections, that's uh, a good sign. And the other thing about, you know, men, most, most men will tell you and most women know this about men. They have a special relationship with masturbation yes. that women don't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. So again, one of the things I oftentimes ask about with men is, are you able to get and sustain strong erections with masturbation? And what you'll find is that that starts to fall off as well. So men will notice that, but they like to your point, they don't always want to talk about that because yep. it's something that women are more comfortable being, you know, quote, vulnerable and open than men are with some of these sensitive things. So that's partly uh, what we're looking at. And actually, I believe now in the research, because they have all these scores, if you know about like, you know, these erection scores and how yep. to quantify and qualify erections. And one of the things they're doing now is um, the masturbation erection scale where they're, they're, they're basically being like, asking questions around that. And any good clinician tends to do that anyway. Do, are you getting morning erections? How firm are they? Have mm -hmm. they changed? How, you know, when you masturbate, are you able to uh, maintain an erection or not? Um, with sex, how strong yeah. are your erections? How long do they last? And that kind of thing. And we can certainly get into some of the discussion around, you know, some of this is overuse. I mean, you'll certainly, I've certainly had men who will, you know, who are masturbating and watching porn, porn like crazy. Yeah, and that is going to deal. impact the, their ability to um, keep the penis sensitive to stimuli and also responsive um, to mm -hmm. erection, you know, uh, as, as much as you're doing that. So that is, and even girlfriends will tell you that. It's just like, you know, what is going on? You don't, you know, you're masturbating all the time and that's why you're not able to achieve an erection. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I do think, you know, sort of, uh, quantifying, you know, sort of uh, erections and talking about that is important. Well, how much porn is too much porn? I've been asked that. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's another interesting. You know, yeah. it, it's 
how do you how do you quantify? Okay, so how much are you watching? Because I obviously there's the difference between a guy who maybe sits at home and watches it six hours a day, mm-hmm. or there's the every day, or the guy who just travels. Yeah. And and two part question. So, you know, what are the effects of that with the constant hits of dopamine with with porn as it relates to erections? And then, how do we help guide those men who are able to achieve erection? Because they, you know, they do watch porn, but when they're in bed with a partner, they can achieve erection, but maybe they go soft early Mm -hmm. or they can't get that same strength in their erection Mm -hmm. to be able to finish or please their partner. Yeah. Well, a couple things with that. The research is mixed. You'll find research saying that porn has no impact on um, erections and it's not addictive. And you also find research that says it is. And usually when you're looking at research like that, usually what that means is that there is a population of men. Sometimes they will be included in the studies and sometimes they won't. Remember, studies are a tool for averages, not individuals. And so probably whenever you see studies like that, you have to begin to qualify and say, let's look at men who are heavily involved with porn. Let's just focus on those and let's see if we can find sort of effects. Mm-hmm. And right now the research is kind of all over the place. I was just reading a study this morning because I tend to, as you know, I tend to be oh, in, yeah. in bed day. in the morning <laughs> and reading research and, you know, at least reading abstracts. And then sometimes I'll delve in and they're actually coming up with, again, a survey to essentially um, quantify these individuals and say, who is uh, porn reactive and who is not? So again, the idea that porn is going to be bad for all men is... Uh, you know, not true. And we still don't know what might be too much. And it's probably very similar to, you know, people who do drugs. Some people can do it recreationally when they're in their college ages and have no problems. Some people get hooked on them. And it's probably um, sort of the same uh, sort of thing here. I will tell you this that's interesting. Um, Watching pornography uh, from from two studies that I'm aware of, watching pornography for men where they don't where they masturbate or not mm-hmm. and either do or do not ejaculate. If you don't ejaculate through masturbation, you're actually stimulating testosterone production. Um, so they, that, is a, that is probably a reliable way to increase testosterone in men. As a matter of fact, one really interesting study was they had men go to the gym and they had them watch erotic stimuli, motivational interviews, uh, motivational stuff. Like it'd be like maybe watching a clip of Conan the Barbarian or watching like, you know, porn, watching two people have (laughs) sex and then measuring their, and, and then they also had like watching, uh, watch things like comedy and stuff like that. And then they're measuring their hormonal profiles. And what they found is watching something motivational and, uh, and or porn gives you the same kind of um, bump in testosterone um, as would as would a motivational thing. So so pornography certainly has per- perhaps a stimulatory mm-hmm. impact in that way. Um, but if you're watching it, masturbating, and you know you know finishing every time, you're probably going to maybe have testosterone be low. So that's one way to sort of look at it. So, so what you're saying is is get ready, like masturbate, watch porn, don't finish, go to the gym. If it, based on this particular <laughs> study, guys. based on this particular study, it may actually enhance testosterone production absolutely. And we don't know if that's the case with women, but that kind of makes some sense, right? It's like, you know, mm-hmm. um Men are very visually, uh, you know, sort of uh, stimulated sexually, so they're going to see that. That is um, a testosterone enhancer, you know, and so would, you know, so the things that stimulate um, 
competition stimulates testosterone in men. Yep, yep. We now know sexual activity, mm-hmm. um, watching sexual activity may stimulate it as well. And you might say, well, I think maybe the chronic effect of over, overly masturbating and finishing all the time with porn Maybe. Now, to me, it's maybe because right. the, you and I work in a very gray zone area now. We don't know a whole lot about what this is. We know that testosterone is related for sure. But like we just talked about with the whole thing about, you know, body composition, fat storage and stuff like that, there are other hormones and things involved. Correct. So yeah. anything that I missed there that you want to kind of make sure people sort of understand, I think it's important. What we're basically trying to do for you all listening is help you quantify, you know, um, and qualify sort of what things uh, are going on with erections and especially some of the stuff that you normally won't hear about that yeah. you'll have Allie and I talk about. Because like this have is, these there's nothing that's porn. TMI in our world. Mm-hmm. So at exactly. least, you know, but because I've, I've read also different studies where they will not allow men to finish for a number of days and then testosterone jumps like 600%. Yep. But, but does that do anything circula- circulatory-wise? Yep, yep. Yeah, we don't know, right? And that's the, that's the, other, that's the interesting thing. So um, theoretically, that should boost performance. And mm-hmm. I, I think some of those studies have actually shown that there is a boost also in performance. And by performance, I mean performance in the gym, right. not, yeah, not, not performance uh, in the bedroom. So we, we will try to, as we have this discussion, try to distinguish between the two. But I would say for most men, especially if we're talking about optimizing testosterone, anything you can do, especially as you age, that does that is probably a good idea. You know, so um, and, and I think that kind of goes into stuff we, we tend to and I want to get your thoughts on this. But what we tend to do, I think, in this field, a lot the people who work with testosterone, is we tend to um, always think that testosterone equals erection. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and it, it doesn't, you know, so, uh, clinically. And I'll ask you this, but I'll give you everyone listening my take on this clinically. Um, it's somewhat, it's a, it's a little bit more than related average, but it's not a, a sure thing. For example, I was telling Allie before we got on, because we were talking about things, and I, was, I take testosterone replacement therapy. I, di- I was diagnosed, I was in the 200s when I diagnosed myself with low T, probably in my late 30s. At that time, I had no problems with erections. I had never had any issues with erections. It wasn't until I actually went on testosterone replacement therapy that I noticed a change in my erections to a weaker erection. Hmm. Now, what, so it's this interesting thing. So for me, with that, uh, going on testosterone replacement therapy, I, I probably over-aromatize, which we'll get to here in a minute, but for me, I feel so much better in the brain. The slight decrease in erection um, doesn't bother me. Now, if I had lost my erections and I would, you know, I would get off TRT immediately. It was, it's a noticeable effect. Not so much that I want to come off of it because I feel so good everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But what I want people to understand is I've certainly put men on testosterone therapy where their erections got much worse. Most of the time, though, I think it gets better. And I want to hear your clinical experience for that as well. Is um, that acutely within the first couple months or until they are able to find a dosage that works? You know pretty quickly. And then, of course, yeah. what we've all been fooling around with is we've been fooling around with, well, maybe it's this estrogen-testosterone ratio, right. which is still not clear, but I have had um, – positive effects on that too, where you put in, you know, an aromatase inhibitor or something like that. And you're like, okay, well, 
things have that makes things a little bit better mm-hmm. doesn't really make a difference for yeah. for me so we don't really uh sort of know yet no i'm glad you you brought that up because i think initially when we first started talking about the erection and and having it relate to stress a lot of guys automatically just think testosterone mm-hmm. they think oh my my testosterone's low that's why i'm not achieving erections when theoretically they could have testosterone of 800 and have all this other stuff going on in their life, or maybe they just sleep like shit lately or something. Mm-hmm. So it does not always equate to a hormonal issue, yeah. as we know. Yeah, and actually, that's an interesting, here's an interesting point for you. This is, now, again, whenever you hear someone talk <laughs> about their own case study, you got to be very, very careful, right? Yeah. And that's the biggest mistake you can make is, is to make judgments off of your own case study. And I have my own case study because I did have low T, and I also... I snore and I believe I have sleep apnea. I've never been tested for, but I record my Mm -hmm. snoring. The other other interesting thing about this is people who with sleep apnea tend to be lean towards diabetes, tend to have very poor erections, tend to have a lot of different things that look like, you know, um, the over fat, under exercised individual. You will see a lot of people who are sort of meathead bodybuilders and stuff like that with these thick necks who get sleep apnea, cannot sleep. And here's the interesting thing. Testosterone therapy as a physician is contraindicated in anyone with sleep apnea because it makes it so much worse. And so Mm -hmm. part of what I've always thought is that you have to be very careful about giving TRT to someone who has sleep apnea who may be dealing with this because it can make it worse. And it certainly does with me. I can tell that my uh, snoring goes through the, I use a, a app called uh, snore app or whatever that, oh, interesting. that records my snoring and I can hear when I stop breathing at times. Yeah. And so that's another thing that I've often speculated on that you don't give TRT to someone with bad sleep apnea. Um, that actually, if you make someone sleep apnea worse, it would make sense that you're going to make everything worse, including erections mm-hmm. worse. So you have to be careful hmm. about that. So I don't know if you've seen that as well, but not, not, so much, but I've seen like with the sleep, you know, I, and I say this every time I have a talk, it's, it's the most unsexy thing. Just like with diet, people just think that there's a secret proprietary supplement that they're missing out on. That's going to be the answer to everything. And nothing is going to help you, not any supplement, not no diet, no hormone therapy, if you're not sleeping and addressing it is is very difficult with a lot of these guys because they want to be a hero and I can function on no sleep. And I've had guys who walk off red eyes and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go train. I'm re-. And it's like, no, man, like you're doing yourself a disservice. And I equate it to when we were kids and we would have sports practice. Whoever was the first person to get a drink, like you're a loser. Mm. The same thing, like whoever's the first person to admit, you know what, I'm not going to go to the gym the next day. I actually need to get another hour of sleep. They, they perceive that as being weak when it's the one thing that's going to save them. So I've, I've told uh, fitness professionals in my talks, I'm like, all right, if you really want to nail somebody, you know, if you start to be able to try to feed them more carbohydrates to fuel their hard training and their body's kind of rejecting it and they're, you know, retaining water, they don't feel so good, have them do morning glucose because if they're not sleeping – and they think it's okay, and then all of a sudden they've got 104 glucose in the morning because of that, then, yeah, this makes sense. Go get a sleep test. Mm -hmm. So usually it takes that data or blood work, you know, if they have a heart issue or something like, dude, you're going to die. Okay, now I'll do something about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an important thing. And the sleep part with men, I think that's one of the first things I would be – looking at now because I saw it within myself and I've seen it with a lot of individuals, but it is 
sort of tricky in that regard. So why don't we, let's pivot just briefly, because I'm not so sure a lot of people sort of understand it. Let's talk about a little bit about some of the things, like how erection works, um, you know, some of the things that men can do beyond testosterone. And then if you want, we can get into, you know, actual testosterone sort of uh, therapies and, you know, that kind of stuff in a brief on TRT. And I, I did this, by the way, those listening in, in this uh, podcast, there is an episode, I forget what uh, episode it is, that covers uh, some of this information. But uh, Ali has, you know, overlapping and other areas of expertise that I don't have. So that's why I kind of wanted her to kind of, you know, share this with us. So any, anywhere you kind of want to start with that, let's walk them through sort of um, how this uh, sort of erection stuff works and, uh, you know, just from a physiological perspective. So I, I remember the the podcast you did on that and the course you did on it. So uh, you laid it out very easily. Jay, if Jade does anything extremely well, it's simplifying the science of a lot of this information and the orchestration of all the hormones and everything involved in creating an erection starts with the guy being able to get into a parasympathetic state. And that in itself is hard to get people to do lately. Absolutely. You know, especially in, as, as it comes off of being able to sleep and the aura ring, I think great tool to be able to assess that because then if guys are not getting morning erections and you can, you can't, you know, qualify their sleep because people will say, Oh, I got eight hours of sleep. Yeah, you went to bed at 10, but you don't know when you fell asleep and the quality of your sleep. And I know I'm harping on this, mm -hmm. but it really is that important. Uh, the time spent in deep and REM sleep and how that um, can affect your erectile strength. Yeah. So from a stress standpoint, you know, what, what do you see when guys come in and they complain that they're not getting the same erectile strength mm -hmm. or if they never experienced premature ejaculation and mm -hmm. now they are? Or they just cannot finish for the life of them. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, sex is great if it lasts more than a minute, but not like 600 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, the, and the way that I often teach this to men, and it's not my model. Um, I picked it up. I think, I think, I actually think this was taught in, in my medical school. So whoever my, whoever the doc was who taught this basic science, um, I point talk shoot. about, yeah, the point yeah. shoot is a good way to sort of look at it. So those of, I mean, we talk about, you know, Ali and I talk about parasympathetic, sympathetic stuff all the time. Many of you listening, there's a very savvy listener population on my podcast. But for those who don't know, parasympathetic is just simply the relaxation response. So you have your nervous system can either be stimulated or relaxed. And so relaxed is parasympathetic, right? Stimulated is sympathetic. And when we think of erections, we tend to use the point and shoot way of thinking about it. In other words, point P, parasympathetic, shoot, ejaculation, sympathetic. And so there's this unique coordination between the parasympathetic and sympathetic. So in its perfect thing, as Ali would, was alluding to, think about this, and, and many women will know this, but think about a man who you have never had sexual intercourse with. You really love him to death. You guys are, are you, know, you know, talking to women now or anyone who's had romantic interest in men, and he can't achieve an erection. You know he likes you. He's super excited. You know, you, you get it. What's the deal? Well, that's because he is nervous. So being super nervous as a man will result in lack of uh, erection or perhaps a an initial response and then the erection sort of falls off because this man is nervous that's because he can't get into 
of parasympathetic state. So one of the things I oftentimes say for a man is like, one, you need to relax. And any woman who sort of has ever had this happen with her lover knows that this is where men can really uh, benefit from foreplay, right? And men are also very visual creatures. So as long as the woman is relaxed and it's not bothering her at all, she can easily pretty much turn that around, right? For, for a guy that that happens to. Same, same thing if a man over drinks. Alcohol is really interesting because alcohol a little bit makes you more parasympathetic. It'll actually prove, improve erection. So, but a little too far, it actually shuts down parasympathetic and pushes you into sympathetic. And so alcohol is another interesting thing. And I would oftentimes say people who respond to this or not can be a little bit more responsive to stress. So the erection sort of tells you. Likewise, someone who is, um, you know, kind of doesn't get a full erection but ejaculates quickly is someone we could say is maybe more into a sympathetic state. So premature ejaculation falls into that. And then to your point, someone who is, you know, rock hard and, you know, um, just going like crazy. This, this normally, by the way, for anyone who's, uh, who's lovers of men who has seen this, this is oftentimes men, this is a good sign they've taken something before they, they got with you, right? It's yeah. like, this is a good sign they've taken like, you know, uh, Viagra or Cialis, Cialis or, or something, or something yeah. uh, along those lines. But you certainly can, um, sort of, uh, get that sort of effect. And it is interesting, right? Because there is, at least when we're talking about uh, sex, women will oftentimes say this, and I think men don't know, but, you know, I've heard this over and over again from women. They're just like, yeah, there, there is like too long. Yes. yes. There is absolutely too long. <laughs> there's too short and there's too long. Yeah. And, you know, women, as amazing as they are in bed managing all the erections and all the emotions, there is like, you know, <laughs> they don't necessarily want to be, you know, be doing that with you for two hours. So that whole thing for you young men listening, um, I know you think that's what it's supposed to be, but it's actually not. So that's, that's sort of the issue there. Then I think I'll say one more thing and then get your take on this. Those hormones, estrogen and testosterone in particular, prime the nervous system in the penis. So we can talk about the nervous system and then the local innervation of the penis. Part of what those hormones are doing are priming that parasympathetic sympathetic balance. Right. So that's where they become important. Those hormones simply prime the pump of the tissue and then the nervous system stimulation comes down and is able to do what it needs to do with that sort of sponge like pressure effect of an of an erection and being able to maintain that. So I think hopefully that helps people understand the mechanics of um, erection. And then we can get into some of the things that are helpful um, for that. By the way, high blood pressure obviously because we're dealing with a pressure system um, is a huge issue um, mm -hmm. with uh, uh, that's why metabolic syndrome, yeah. which is, you know, has a lot of things with high blood pressure. That's typically going to be one of the first things we look at if we start seeing uh, these effects. Yeah. And, and just like vascular health in general. Um, I'm sure you're aware guys are now taking Cialis daily, five to 10 milligrams just to achieve a better uh, endothelial health or, you know, vascular, because you still need, you need blood to flow in order to achieve that erection. And if blood's not flowing very well, or if, uh, you know, the body's ability to have those systems clear, so to speak, is kind of compromised, it, it's still not going to happen. So this is why there, there's so much that goes into being able to achieve and sustain an erection versus just having higher low take. Yeah. And as you mentioned with estrogen, like the bodybuilding world, I think kind of got everybody 
in the mind mindset of like, oh, we have to suppress all estrogen. We have to lower it, eliminate it, get rid of it. When in fact, when guys do that and then drive it down too low, then they end up with the same issues from low libido, yep. low uh, erectile strength. They're more prone to heart issues. And I think that's where a lot of the complicated um, info of testosterone causing heart attacks and all that, that research that's since been up upended, but many doctors still preach came from the fact that they didn't get the testosterone levels high enough and they didn't manage estrogen. And then estrogen was either really low or super high or the ratio was off. Yeah. And when you're looking at two hormones like estrogen and testosterone and their relation, it's very difficult to tease out those correlations or any sort of effect there. So I think that's a big um, sort of piece of that for sure. And I would say the other, the vascular health thing, let's just give you guys some to-dos there. So nitric oxide is the major sort of vascular event that is sort of happening in the penile tissue to help um, blood flow sort of come in. There's many things that we can do supplement-wise, um, exercise-wise. Exercise is definitely a nitric oxide potentiator. Um, Arginine supplementation has been shown to uh, raise nitric oxide and aid with erections, although there might be other supplements that are a little bit better than that, like, um, uh, and it's flipping my mind now, it's not uh, citrulline. Citrulline. I always go, I always get, yeah, I always go carnitine, carnosine, <laughs> citrulline, I always got to go all the C's, yeah, yeah, yeah. but citrulline actually has been shown to raise arginine. Uh, blood levels and nitric oxide blood levels uh, to a greater degree than if you took arginine alone, alone. which is interesting. That's very, uh, very high in the rind, the white part of the watermelon, actually. And then obviously nitrates and nitrites from food, which we've kind of been scared off by because, mm. you know, people think bacon and nitrates and nit <laughs> yeah. nit nitrate, or and nitrites. Or whatever. But the interesting thing is there's much, much higher concentrations of nitrites and nitrates in green vegetables and beets and things like that. So particularly beets and arugula, uh, when we eat these things, we have bacteria in the back of our throat that fix this stuff. We swallow it. It becomes nitric oxide. It can aid, you know, erection. So, you know, Allie and I always refer to pee, -pee greens. Well, I refer to it as that. She <laughs> makes fun of me of arugula. I call it pee, -pee greens because it's like these things, literally salads yeah. are very erection NO, food, yeah, right? their, their erection. Did I tell you what happened to me in England? Like, no, no. So I spoke in England in July, and I was we, we were eating lunch, and I was talking about arugula and the pee, -pee green, mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, you mean rocket. Yeah, and that's I was right. Like, you call it rocket? <laughs> I know, that's right. I was right. like, what? I was like, this is amazing. Yep. And so I they actually- have a much better name that says what yeah, it's doing. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, rocket, that's like genius. I thought that was hilarious. And I made an Instagram post about it, and literally, it was just a guy's boner through his shorts. They took it down. And I was like, you mean to tell me that these girls who wrap themselves around themselves <laughs> with like a thong on, and you see their birth canal, can get away with an Instagram post, but a guy's boner, you don't even see anything through the shorts. Yeah. You talk about a food that can help it. Oh, my God. But I was like, I, I remember I couldn't wait to tell yeah, you. I was yeah. like, rocket? I was like, yeah. shit, why do we call that in the Rocket America? greens, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, and, and I think that's an, an important thing. A lot of guys don't, and dudes don't, again, women tend to be the ones who eat salads all the time. Yeah, and men tend yeah, to be the yeah. ones eating burgers, mm -hmm. right? And to me, I just go like, salads are definitely erection food. You know, it's, it's really sort of uh, true in that regard. Beets are another one. Toss salads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously, erection food. So, what else? And, and a couple, uh, 
I have my favorite supplements for this that I've had very good responses on. And actually, the one, like if you were like, Jade, is there one supplement that you like to use that you've seen? And I've used it for a very long time, so I have enough clinical experience now. It's just difficult to find, but um, uh, Panax Korean ginseng, 900 milligrams daily in research, has been shown to be a really nice uh, erection potentiator. And I have found that to be clinically, you don't always find that, right? You don't always find a study and go, oh, this has been shown to work and then use it clinically and see that it's pretty effective. And that's one that I can kind of uh, give people a tidbit with if you want something that is sort of like, what can I take um, that will, you know, do me some good. Uh, Certainly citrulline has been shown in research to be somewhat effective. I've seen clinically that the ginseng, Panax Korean ginseng. It's very, it's that type of ginseng, which is actually difficult to get because there's several different types of Panax. I wish my brother Keone was here because he's more an expert in this. Um, but there's one type of that that ginseng that works really well, and um, I don't know the brand name that I I literally get it on uh, Amazon. I'm, the brand name is uh, um, you know, I can't I can't find it right now. Testosterone. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's thyroid. It's funny. Morning sometimes like this, like my mind starts. I'm like, ooh, what was I going to say? Morning, it's like 1 yeah. p.m. But anyway, I actually <laughs> literally get this off of, um, off of Amazon uh, and have my clients get it right off of Amazon, this particular yeah. one, and it works really well. Uh, do you have any, that you, any others that you love? Uh, the citrulline for sure. Mm-hmm. But also, let, let, I, I don't want people to be confused because I think people confuse with libido-enhancing or erection-enhancing supplements mm. with testosterone-boosting supplements. Yeah, let's go through that. So, uh, because I love to mess with the guys at Vitamin Shop and GNC. I mm. just, like, walk over the men's health section, and it's like, oh, wow, like a Jackuloid and Testo Boost <laughs> RX. And all. I'm like, oh, yeah, tell me about this, you know? Even in in my hotel room, they had a commercial for like GF9, which enhances growth hormone 600%. Okay, really? Let me look this up. It's all amino acids and and stupid stuff. So please don't fall for those supplements that are on the shelf that cost $99 or that they're locked up with a key that claim to boost your testosterone. There are definitely things that can help your blood flow and then help enhance your life if you're missing out on them, being magnesium, Mm -hmm. uh, zinc, you know, zinc working as a weak aromatase inhibitor mm-hmm. in some senses. And uh, sleep is a supplement. I mean, I'll categorize sleep as everything, and I'm not going to stop shutting up about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also find that electrolytes as well, because mm-hmm. guys will drink water or people will drink water. They don't drink enough because they don't like the taste, mm-hmm. which I totally understand. So things like if you're traveling, noon tabs are great because it won't set off the explosives on the carry-on bags. And, you know, making sure you're getting in, like a lot of people are very de- deficient in potassium if, if they're over-salting their food, and a lot of people don't salt their food. Yep. So I think being able to be well hydrated from a cellular level is going to help them achieve better bud- blood flow, too. So an electrolyte powder is actually something that I've had more people incorporate lately and gets uh, them to drink more. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's important to understand, uh, I think what Ali's rightfully pointing out is that something like citrulline, Panax, ginseng, some of these things, they're not enhancing uh, testosterone. That's actually pretty clear in the research. They're not working by those mechanisms. Nitric oxide, you know, the nitrates and nitrite-rich stuff, they're not enhancing uh, testosterone. Um, 
when we talk about enhancing testosterone, so she mentioned zinc and magnesium. The other one I'd throw in there is vitamin D, as in mm -hmm. David. Uh, these also don't either unless you are low, but... Okay. Um, I think Allie and I would tell you many, many men are low in one or more of those. And so that is uh, really important. And so this is where off the shelf stuff like ZMA is, you know, a Love really ZMA. just nice one that in some research has been shown to raise testosterone mildly. Vitamin D is very important, you know, making sure you get that into the range of 50 to 100. Um, those are the ones that first come to mind when I think of supplements to enhance testosterone. And then um, this one, not a whole lot of people will like, and uh, I don't think Ali's going to have a problem with it, but other people who are experts in this field, uh, adaptogens in general can be very good for dealing with a parasympathetic sympathetic balance and helping the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis. And there's many of those that I have seen um, in you know uh, many ways that can enhance testosterone. One in particular that does have some research uh, showing that it does actually enhance testosterone in many cases is ashwagandha, which also helps uh, thyroid. So adaptogens tend to, and by the way, Panax is also an, ad an adaptogen. So we tend to play with those of us who do male hormonal health and working with uh, testosterone, tend to play with adaptogens. I was going to ask you, which ones of those do you like the best? The, the ashwagandha, mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, it can help you, it has a stimulatory and a uh, calming property mm -hmm. to it. Um, the, the, the only issue that I run into, and because I think maybe if, if, I'm not a medical practitioner or whatever, but um, people tend to think they, they'll equate nutrition coaching with supplement coaching yep. and they won't do the foundational work for yep. any of that to work. So yep. they think, oh, I can just pop ashwagandha and I'll get a 200 point test boost yep. and then I'll be raging in the gym and I'll drop weight. Oh, my God, Ali, it's such an important point. And actually, it reminds me of uh, one of the key things that you and I need to talk about here that we would have been remiss if we missed it, which so I'm glad you brought that up. But the other interesting thing about testosterone in general, and this goes for men and women, think about it. In a sense, our metabolism is, the, is one big stress barometer. And part of what it's doing is saying, is it good to reproduce? Because that's one of the primary directives of all of us and our species is to reproduce. And so any kind of stress especially over-exercising and under-exercising or overeating and under-eating can impact both in men and women that hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis and impact um, our uh, you know, uh, libido-enhancing sex steroids. And so you will oftentimes see people who cut out macronutrients, you know, very low-fat diets, very high-fat, low-carb diets. The, these, a lot of these people will oftentimes come in if they've been on them for a while um, with low T. You, you used to see this, you know, when I was working a lot with fitness and figure competitors, women would come in without menses, mm -hmm. estrogen and progesterone in the tank. Men would come in, you know, they're these big muscular dudes with these great bodies, haven't had an erection, their yeah. libido's in the tank. So any of these extreme dietary regimes on either side, what you find is very lean men and very fat men don't get erections and don't want to have sex. Yeah. It's a really interesting yeah. thing. So you might see this guy, for example, who looks like, you know, the epitome of, you know, the leanest person on the planet and what a badass or whatever on Instagram. And he has no erections and no libido because his testosterone is in the tank. And so oftentimes I think we see when we see very lean, muscular men like that, we tend to think, oh, you know, that must be... Um, testosterone probably helped him get there, but the leaner he gets, the more he's being 
probably becoming deficient in that. So any extreme 100%. diets and balancing out macronutrient ratios are important, which alludes to what you're essentially talking about. I see that so often. And I actually laugh at, at guys who say their doctor says to them, we don't need to test your testosterone. You look awesome. Mm-hmm. And as you know, physique athletes on stage have the lowest levels, if they're natural, have the lowest levels probably they'll ever have. And at the end of a prep, a guy's way more interested in a pizza than he is in having sex. Absolutely. That's kind of like, you know, okay, that now I know maybe I'm taking it to another level. And if any of you guys have seen me talk, a lot of you know that I talk uh, from what I learned from Jade with the metabolic toggles. And my talk this year is called Toggling the Metabolism. How about that? I love it. Um, and the biofeedback uh, acronym that you came up with, Schmeck, I added an L for libido, Schmeckel. Ah, I love it. So now, now it sounds like a Jewish word. <laughs> so understanding how, you know, especially this time, because it is still January, even though it feels like March, um, people are still kind of into the whole new year, new me, you know, slashing calories. And then I get these guys and, and the magic number for women is like 1200 calories. Mm-hmm. And for men it seems to be like 1700 mm-hmm. and they're eating 1700 calories and they're running every day. All of a sudden, it's, it, it's been running, and actually, it's not all of a sudden. Every year, it is, you know what? I got to get in shape. I'm going to run. Yeah. As soon as it's nice out, I'm going to run. And so then they're running, and then they add weight training on top of that. And Alan Cosgrove and I were talking uh, the other day how a lot of people are coming to us doing mostly circuit metabolic workouts only. And nobody is really sticking to the like old school straight set strength training to actually develop strength and muscle. It's these high intensity cardio workouts. And as you know, the pendulum swings mm-hmm. in the industry. And we went through this whole fuck cardio movement. And now it's high intensity, everything all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, depending on what diet and when keto was the rage, obviously doing zero carb and doing glycolytic sports does not mesh very well. And anything that is taken to the extreme, which America loves to be about, because if 200 milligrams of caffeine is good, 800 is better, obviously it's going to have ramifications. And one of those things, as Jade said, is procreation is not on your body's top priority list when it senses you're in trouble. And you're in trouble when you add a, a huge amount of stress to your metabolism, which is overtraining and training all day, every day, and then not eating enough to fuel that. Yeah, I love that. And it just, it's, it's this thing that if you understand, everyone understands what not moving and eating until your heart's content does. We all know that's a stress to the system. What people don't understand all the time is that long-term calorie deprivation or carb deprivation or fat deprivation or protein deprivation with you know, this crazy exercise regime can be a stress. And what I'd add to what Ali said is here's the part that gets confusing. Um, this is more so with, with women, but it also happens with men. The degree to which that the, the body fat percent or the degree to which that becomes a problem varies from person to person. So, for example, in women who lose libido and lose menses, I've seen it happen in the low 20 percent body fat for women. I've seen some women get as low as 15%. After that, pretty much all women start to lose libido and menses. For men, it can happen as early as around 15% to 10%. 10%, you get there, you know, uh, right around 6%, you'll start seeing a lot of dudes. I would say most of them um, start to see 
perhaps issues with um, erections and libido as well. And so it happens for some people when they're a little heavier than what they think they should be. So the metabolism doesn't respond to numbers on a piece of paper. The metabolism responds to its happy point, and that is based on you as an individual. So let's, um, as before we wrap up, I just want to see, do you want to talk a little bit about um, testosterone replacement therapy and sort of the pharmaceuticals uh, that, that are available to people and any sort of things there? Because we've kind of covered lifestyle, basic physiology, some supplements, mm-hmm. and I know some people are going to be like, all right, well, let's say I've been doing all those things. I am low. I'm doing everything else. And you know, I'm thinking about potentially going on some kind of pharmaceutical. How do you walk your clients through that? Um, so I think it's great since you're a doctor, you can give the perspective of maybe some of the roadblocks that people experience when they go to somebody. So the, the first suggestion that I would have would to not be going to a GP or somebody that would be an insurance-based doctor. Um, this is about optimization. This is about something that has nothing to do with sick care. So it's well worth the investment to find a practitioner, would you agree, that understands hormonal optimization. Mm-hmm. And with that at comes asking how, how large of your practice is on hormone replacement mm-hmm. and how do they manage it and what is their preferred delivery method? Because there's many different methods to acquire testosterone replacement. It's not just injections um, because you can't patent a hormone. So you have to have pharmaceutical companies created alternative methods via creams and gels and pellets. And, you know, a lot of these things um, are great money makers for certain practitioners, but maybe they don't always get the job done the best way for a guy. So, you know, it starts with testing. And a lot of the times, if they can get the proper testing, the standard protocol for a male being in, going on injections is 200 milligrams every 10 days. A lot of my guys, if they're able to get that, then they'll ask their doctor, well, what about more frequent injections? And they say no. So where did this standardized protocol for one injection every 10 days come? Because somebody of your size versus somebody who's 400 pounds versus somebody who's 150 pounds... Why should they all be on the same amount? To be honest with you, it's actually a a matter of convenience, and that's it. It's not based on anything else. So a lot of what you'll find happen in clinical practice comes down to convenience and the ability to bill. What ended up happening is when these things were developed, you know, we didn't have nowadays you can go down and get yourself your own injectables. You can find online. You can order, uh, you know, um, three cc syringes and all that kind of stuff and have all that uh it used to be you have to go in and get your injection from your doctor so part of it was convenience other part is even now most men don't want to do injections Um, that's a big hurdle for a lot of people the truth of the matter is the way testosterone would work the ideal way would be to inject every single day a small amount because what ends up happening is you have testosterone in your system and we can't really duplicate you know some of the the biological rhythms. Testosterone tends to have a circadian profile, we believe, a little bit. It tends to also respond to, if you exercise, you know, sleep, it responds to a lot of different things. We can't reproduce that, but what we can reproduce is a daily sort of amount. So when we give 200 milligrams every 10 days, which was the standard, you get a huge spike in testosterone, then it falls off. So you get this very, a lot of testosterone effect and probably a lot of aromatization, and then you get sort of a fall off and symptoms come back. What most doctors do now is they basically teach their clients 
to do the injections themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they recommend 100 milligrams and 100 milligrams basically every five days. Right. Um, I like to do 100 milligrams, 100 milligrams basically within seven days. So it's like every other day, every third day, basically, mm -hmm. you're doing an injection. Part of that is, though, is because most men don't want to do that injection. For me personally, because I, when I'm on TRT, I use a testosterone propionate and I go every day to every other day. And it, I'm doing that to smooth out my testosterone curves and minimize some of the, the huge spikes and drops. Um, Love that. But the three big ones typically, and the one you won't find propionate, by the way, those of you listening, you won't find pretty much anywhere that you'll get propionate, but you can find cypionate and enanthate pretty much anywhere. And the standard dose, in my mind, the way it works uh, the best is 100 milligrams every third day is a really nice dose. And then you see where your response is. Looking for a number somewhere between, in my mind, 700 to 1,200. And I tend to like to push up towards the higher end of physiological. There is some argument that if you look at, you know, um, the, we probably had even uh, testosterone levels way higher than what the average is. So some people would argue for optimals around 1,600. I don't. I kind of like it right around. If I was going to say, what's the perfect number? Let's just make it 1,000 is kind of where I like uh, to kind of see it. Um, then from there, you can kind of back off to other things. I have never found creams. Now, I, now, truth be known, I haven't used a lot of them, but when I did, I never saw, found creams that effective. I know some uh, MDs get mad at me when I say this because they've heard me say this, and they're like, I get great results from creams. Fine, I certainly haven't in a, a relatively small N for me. And yeah. now the new whole new thing is, you know, sort of pellet therapies and things like that. Um, right now, most all the data and most all my clinical experience comes from injectables. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I like those and find them easy. But then again, I know some, I know there's an awful lot of men. I, I know women might think, you know, men are, you know, but there's a lot of men that do not want to stick themselves. I have no issues with it. And most of the clients I work with tend to be like, ah, no issue. And what by the way, go to, what would be your go-to if they don't want to inject what would be the next best? I, I have no experience with pellets at all. So yeah. I can't speak on that with any sort of, good. Yeah, with any level of, uh, but I have uh, had a few people who have been on them and seen sort of what I've seen with the creams. Mm -hmm. um, but I would probably go to, you know, um, sort of the creams or to be honest with you, I always do before I go to injections, I go HCG and or Clomid, mm. which both of those mm -hmm. work really well. And I like, I like that. If you want to know my clinical hierarchy, what I'd recommend it's, it's diet exercise. You got to get that just like Ali said, you got to get that in place. And then adding in some uh, adaptogens, see if we can bring this up. And by the way, the thing I've seen best for that is ashwagandha can bring that back in some men. Um, so making sure you got the ZMA on board, all that kind of right. stuff. And then I like HCG or Clomid. I know some docs do both. I like HCG or Clomid, and I've moved more towards Clomid. And the reason mm -hmm. why is it's cheaper and it's oral. Yeah. And so you don't, there's no yeah. injection. And you can see some really good effects with that. HCG um, tends to aromatize a little bit more in clients. I don't love it, plus it's still injection. Yeah. Uh, so Clomid is quickly becoming my first sort of line of therapy. And those who are a little bit more savvy and want the background on this, it's just the way HCG is essentially a, um, an LH analog. It basically stimulates testosterone uh, directly in the testes. And interestingly enough, Clomid is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. A lot of people don't know this, but estrogen feedback to the hypothalamus does impact testosterone production. And so Clomid blocks that signaling the hypothalamus to be like, oh, we better make some more testosterone. So Clomid can be very nice. And actually, um, there was a 52-week study on Clomid in men 
comparing it directly to injectable TRT, it was very safe and almost as effective. And when I saw that study, and I think that study has made a lot of people go, mm. maybe just use Clomid. And then, mm -hmm. so that, I would use those first. They're easier to come off yeah. of. Um, Clomid is cheaper. It's pretty reliable in raising testosterone. We don't see a whole lot of side effects. Um, you still might get some of the estrogen effects with the HCG, less so with Clomid so far what I've seen. And then I go TRT, mm -hmm. um, sort of injectable. So I don't know if, if you're in alignment with that or not. I know you're kind of, you're not actually prescribing these, but you are right. watching an awful lot of men on them. So what has been your perspective with No, I like greens? that. Uh protocol obviously it's having the conversation with guys about the uh sperm production suppression when you mm -hmm. do go on injectables yep. so understanding if they do want to have kids now you know testosterone is not a guaranteed birth control method but mm -hmm. it does suppress it and it's not like you can't get it back if you go off of it because you can go on hcg and or clomid you know concurrently yep. but it does have that effect on it and I say like a lot of guys kind of don't really want to endeavor in the injections because they're like, I don't want to do that the rest of my life. Yep. So I think, you know, considering Clomid or HCG as a monotherapy, I think is a, a great start point mm -hmm. for them. Um, I will say with the pellets, they are from what I have learned and or experienced with clients and a doctor that I, I trained who uh, uh, gave them like CrossFit. You go to a two-day certification, boom, you're ready to go. You can go yeah. put pellets and there's size of a grain of rice. Mm. They put in your butt. And the problem is, you know, similar to like a standard protocol of uh, testosterone. So you're going to give it to people of all different sizes and they're going to metabolize it very differently. Mm. And in order to tweak the dosage, you have to go back in and it's very invasive. Yep. So whereas an injection or a Clomid therapy or, you know, even a cream, you can kind of just mess with the dose right away. You don't have to go back and do like some sort of little surgical procedure. And they're so expensive. I think yeah. he was charging like 900 yeah. and it's 15 minute, you know, so obviously it's a great money maker, mm -hmm. but he would call me and be like, what do I do? This yeah. person's like freaking out. He gained 15 pounds on the scale, you know, so like water weight and stuff like that is, is a real thing, no matter what the delivery system, but also, I just don't think that pellets are really an optimal way to achieve for either men or women. I think women tend to do better on them, but I think for men, they tend to be a disaster. Yeah. Interesting. And, and one of the things that we should also say is that one of the things that's happened recently, there was a study uh, within the last five years showing that um, testosterone injectable is very well absorbed, perhaps even better absorbed sub Q. So what I've done for myself and for a lot of the men that I work with is just have them use insulin needles um, to both draw. The draw is a pain because it is a small <laughs> needle, a so it does time. take a little bit of time, but you have way more sights. And so I go shoulder, shoulder, right side of the belly button, left side of the belly button, left butt cheek, right butt cheek, right thigh, left thigh, and it's a little tiny insulin needle. Yeah. They're, they're very cheap. It's just a pain to draw, but you, you know, as long as you pump enough air into that, it gets easier as you go along, and the injections become almost nothing uh, now as far as that goes. And so it's, those are sort of the importance, I think, uh, you know, sort of considerations. And the other thing that Ali brought up that I'll just add to is that what a lot of people don't know is that um, 
testosterone therapy, especially as you push it up, if you're doing TRT and you're not doing ACG, it is a fairly effective uh, male birth control. So they all, people oftentimes say, oh, we don't have male birth control. Well, you kind of do when you're using TRT. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but it <laughs> dramatically um, will shrink the testicle. So a lot of people say, oh, testosterone shrinks the size of the penis. It does not shrink the shaft of the penis. Yeah. It will shrink the testicles. That's because the testicles don't need to, they're getting the signal not to produce sperm. Your sperm volume will oftentimes fall down as well with, uh, and part of the reason is the feedback of testosterone on the hypothalamus shuts down FSH and LH, which then both of those play a role in sperm production and testosterone production. So you end up getting sort of this, uh, you know, sort of shrinkage of the testicles and a very low sperm volume. A lot of men don't like that one because they want to remain fertile. Mm -hmm. And two, they want to have sperm volume. But for those men who want to use that um, as a birth control, it's a fairly reliable birth control. By the way, so is frequent masturbation, a pretty reliable (laughs) birth control too, because the more you ejaculate, the less sperm volume you have. So those two together are, you know, so it's just an interesting sort of thing to, to mention. I do have I, I have friends who who are bodybuilders who've been on every everything on the on the planet mm-hmm. and like thousand milligrams of tests and still had a baby. So it isn't yeah. you yeah, know a hundred percent you know, but it is pretty effective for that. Um, where was I going with that? So I want to know what your thoughts are. So for men who are on TRT who mm-hmm. do decide you know what I want to have a baby or I want to have you know I want to be fertile. I've had few clients that have gone on Clomid at the same time. Mm. Do you have a preference as to what's more effective with the HCG or Clomid? And HCG will help bring back the testicular hypertrophy. But as a woman, I always tell guys, like, don't worry, we don't really care. Yeah, for me, it's HCG. I wouldn't use Clomid for that. I would go HCG. Um, and typically, my standard is because I think it's like, unless a man says, I, I typically want to have the HCG on board. And part of the reason I do that, completely... Uh, I don't do it with myself, actually, but I do do it with clients. It's completely, you know, theoretical in a sense. But to me, those other hormones are doing other things. Mm -hmm. So to me, I kind of want the HCG stimulating the hypothalamus, you know, sort of as well. I kind of want that LH sort of uh, kick as well. Um, Again, I don't know. I don't have any sort of science to kind of bolster that. It's just that to me, I want the the testicles to be um, getting the signal and, you know, producing sperm. And because mm-hmm. uh, I guess being a naturopath, I, fi- I, I feel like that's the natural response. I don't know that I want to shut that down. Yeah. So for me, it's uh, HCG. And I have actually had no problem with pretty much any man that I've run into where coming off TRT, um, using HCG for a, a period of time. And actually, so HCG... Had, you have them come off I've and then use it them. as a monotherapy or do you have them I use I don't both? like any man coming off TRT unless they want to. And a lot okay. of them do for many reasons, but a lot of it is the injectable, which then you go, okay, well, maybe we, I do want to move you to creams and, and pellets. So mm-hmm. um, many men want to come off for, for a lot, and especially now, more recently now, because people go, I, wanna, I feel like I, my body should be able to do this myself. It's, you used to get that a lot from women. Yeah. You're getting it more and more from men. And, the, and th- that's just something that's interesting. Unlike bodybuilders who do 
testosterone, very high super physiological doses, and then give their body a break. Once you're on TRT, you're not going super physiological. This is within the normal limits. You don't come off. Mm-hmm. You, you don't need a break. You don't want a break. You want that testosterone in your system, so you want it there all of the time. So that's, a, that's one thing I'll mention. Then the other thing I'll mention that, you know, I just want to make sure people understand. Uh, when we're talking bodybuilders, that is a very different population. And when we're talking anabolics, um, bodybuilders are taking a lot of, quote, anabolics that are not testosterone. They're testosterone analogs. They look like testosterone. But when we're talking today, me and Ali, we're talking about testosterone replacement therapy, which means uh, bioidentical testosterones. Uh, those would be testosterone enanthate, testosterone cypionate, uh, and testosterone propionate is the three biggest ones. Things like trembolone and anavar and all of these kinds of things. Those, I don't consider those testosterone. To yeah. me, those are anabolics and a whole different deal. And I honestly, uh, you know, which I may get, you know, blowback on this, but I don't think there's any, you know, um, good medical indication for any of that stuff. Now, if, you know, it's used obviously in sport, but, um, that's where you're getting a lot of the sort of downsides. We, you're, you're just playing a game that we don't know much about when you're using mm-hmm. that stuff. No, I'm glad you brought that up because there, there are like it's, it seems very basic to us, but there are people who consider TRT as steroids, even mm-hmm. though it's a steroid hormone, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily different going on steroids. Yeah. Yes, it's completely different. I mean, what the max dose is, what, 400 milligrams a week yeah. somebody yeah. could uh, prescribe? So, uh, you know, I'm and glad that, would, that... And that would be super, you know, that would be... Sometimes it's necessary, but you almost always can get to physiological ranges with, you know, uh, 200 milligrams. And, and I like to go as low as possible right, to get yeah. the effect. I was going to say, sometimes if guys are injecting more frequently, you could actually lower the dosage mm-hmm. because that release pattern is, is more natural than, and aligned with the body's natural release pattern. I always joke how a lot of the TRT clinics, like the starter pack is 200 milligram sip... HCG and Arimidex mm-hmm. without even doing any labs whatsoever. And mm-hmm. they get sent out the door with that. So it, it's good that we can differentiate what does Clomid do? What does HCG do? Why would you go on both at the same time? Mm-hmm. Would you think that there's no need for a man to be on TRT injectable and HCG for any other reason other than if he demanded to have testicular fullness? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, some guys get side effects from both at the same time. I mean, I, my bias is to always use both as well. I don't, though, put uh, an Astrozole or a Remedex on board right away. I, right. Wait, to, yeah, I yeah. wait to see if, if someone is overly aromatizing or they're getting, um, you know, estrogen-type effects. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, that's just, just clinical judgment at that point. Yeah. I, do, I do like in my clinical, you know, if I'm working with someone, I don't do it myself because I don't mind – uh, some testicular shrinkage. I don't mind that. Right. You know, and to no, me, no, and women don't mind that. Guys. Yeah, I, I, I certainly don't mind Makes it. And your I, penis I like, bigger. yeah, and I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, no, but I, and I like the idea of, you know, not, I don't want children. So yeah. I, I don't mind having a lower sperm volume, but that does bother some men. And, and, uh, so I, I use HCG and TRT yeah. uh, together. And one of, one of the last things, like with the aromatase inhibitors, that's gotten a lot of news lately. Um, cause there's a lot of research showing the DEXA scans of men who are on them long-term mm. being very, very, uh, dangerous for bone density and how the massive suppression of estrogen, uh, can actually end up being more, um, uh, n- more negative than doing positive, but what would you say? Um, and I've heard both different ways, but I tend to err on the side of don't suppress if you don't need to. Yep. Um, but men who do experience 
you know, a little bit more water retention than they would like, some nipple sensitivity, and then it would be, all right, maybe the lowest dose of Arimidex possible versus these overly prescribed, like, half a milligram to a milligram every day or every other day. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, I don't just jump on um, Arimidex, uh, but I definitely have it there because it's needed in a lot of of cases and the lowest dose possible. So I would start with two and a half milligrams for the week. You know, and then if needed, you can go up to five milligrams uh, for that. And again, it's going to be clinical. Uh, you know, this is where a lot of doctors just have their thing that they right. like to do. I, I tend to, you know, uh, I showed you my sort of hierarchy. And then I like to do HCG with testosterone. And then I keep Arimidex in the bag. And oftentimes I'll use something like a Prostate Supreme from Designs for Health, right. which a lot of people, a lot of doctors who hear there, they're like, that stuff's not going to do much. I've seen it do stuff. You know, I've seen it have a weak effects on labs, but uh, typically if you're really aromatizing, unfortunately the natural things are not going to keep that under control. Yeah. But, but uh, for someone who's just, it's just very gentle, uh, those things can be, um, effective. So any final things that you want to sort of make sure people know about this particular topic? It's such a fascinating topic. We can go on and on, but I think we covered pretty much every area. Would you guys want a course for us to do on men's health? Because we've been only planning that for about two or three years. (laughs) I know. know. Allie and I have been thinking about doing that. And she's just like, dude, what is wrong with you? Because she also knows me really well. So she knows anything on my schedule stresses me out. Once it's it's there, I'm fine. But like getting it on my schedule is uh, sort of crazy. So yeah, hit... Hit us up. Uh, tell them where they can find you and where you hang out the most. I mean, um, you're on. Go ahead. I'm on Instagram. A yep. lot of my content's on there. It's the Allie Gilbert, A-L-I. And then my website is ali-gilbert.com. And I do remote and local consulting. I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, but we're moving to Florida in May. Um, but you can do a consult with me and, you know, we can kind of go from there. And then let us know when you want us to do this course because I'm not going to stop. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah exactly. And uh, so are you changing your name, by the way? I, I am. Okay, it but, will be Weingroff. Okay, Weingroff. I already bought the domain because I highly doubt there's any other Ali Weingroffs. Uh, but there's a lot of Ali Gs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, I'll still be Ali Gilbert professionally, um, but socially I'll be Ali Weingroff. Cool. I love you, buddy. Thanks for You're having me. You're awesome, out. man. Thank you. <laughs>